My name is Derek Ogenzi and I'm from Cape Town, South Africa. I'm Yasin Aslam. I'm the chair, I'm the general secretary for and the founder for United Private Heart Driver. My name is Jude Matthew. I'm from India, southern part of India. I live in Tamil Nadu, the headquarters of Tamil Nadu state. Yeah, my name is James Farrer. Uh, I'm the director of Worker Info Exchange. Um, my name is Theresa Munchik, and I'm from the movement. My name is Rebecca Stack Martinez. I'm a Chicago native who came out here to the Bay Area to do a master's program. And while I was doing my master's program, I was driving rideshare um, for Lyft and Uber. Hello, my name is Bama Athreya, and welcome to my new podcast, The Gig. The Gig is about the women and men whose jobs are being affected by technology. But we're not talking about people whose jobs are being taken by robots. We're talking about workers whose bosses are becoming apps. Workers who find their next gigs through a platform or an app. As this is the first episode of this series, I should tell you a little about myself and why I wanted to find out more about workers in the gig economy. To start with, I've been a labor rights activist for a really long time, and I've been concerned about the ways in which multinational corporations, global companies that operate in several countries, are causing a race to the bottom. I was part of the early wave of anti-sweatshop activists as a student in the 1990s. I lived in Indonesia then, and I became close with lots of young women workers who were making sports shoes for Nike and Adidas and other global brands. The companies were selling the shoes for over $100 a pair, but the workers couldn't even get the factories to pay them the legal minimum wage, which was just a dollar a day at that time. Since then, I've learned a lot about a lot of other supply chains too. I've worked on campaigns to end child labor in the chocolate industry, to stop sexual harassment against women workers who produce cut flowers, and to end modern-day slavery on boats that catch seafood for our supermarkets. I've worked with grassroots activists all over the world in places like Cambodia, Liberia, and El Salvador. And lately, I noticed that in every economy, everywhere in the world, something really new is happening. There's an app for everything. So I got interested in finding out more about how this new digital economy was affecting workers. Was it good for them? Was it bad? And I started interviewing people who were getting their jobs through apps. This season will focus on drivers for ride-hailing apps. Just about all of us are familiar with Uber. Uber and other ride-hailing apps have changed the way we think about transportation, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And they've done it in just a few years. Most of you probably remember the first time you used a ride-hailing app. Wasn't it cool to look at your phone and see, within seconds, the name of your driver, the model of the car you were going to be riding in, and watch that little dot progress on the map? No wonder so many customers were hooked so early on ride-hailing apps. I wondered why people chose to drive for Uber. When I started this project, I expected to travel around the world and interview drivers in different countries and talk to them about their experiences working in the gig economy, and I got to do that. I expected to learn about some of their common experiences, but I could never have predicted what would have happened over the course of this past year of interviews. I'll be taking you on this roller coaster ride with me and with the drivers I met. First, how they were excited about the prospects of working with the platforms how they got hooked, 
how they felt increasingly squeezed, and what they started to do to try to organize and to get better conditions for themselves. And then, how everything we thought would happen was completely derailed by the tragedy of the coronavirus pandemic, and many of them found themselves on the front lines of this crisis. This episode will just introduce you to some of the drivers that I met and start to hear their stories. Let's start by meeting Yasin Aslam, one of the very first drivers for Uber in the United Kingdom. So I was the ex-Uber driver. So I actually came into this industry in 2006 when I uh, was made a redundant in my IT job. So I started working part-time as a local minicab driver. So here they call it minicabs. So, uh, yeah, it's just a part-time job for me while I was looking for uh, my IT job again. It was good because I was working... I, you had to work hard because I didn't drink. So if you're happy to sacrifice your Friday and Saturday night, because that's where, where all the work was, the pub work. So if you work a Friday night and a Saturday, you put in long hours. So let's say you come in at, let's say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday and you go back home at 6 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning. Then you wake up again on Saturday, let's say, at uh, 2 o'clock and you get back into work and you finish at like 6, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. You can make £500. And this is going back like in 2006. So that was a good income for me. I was, uh, I just had my first child. I wanted to spend time with my wife, my family. Um, so it gave me that flexibility where I was working two days a week and I was earning enough money to get by without any financial... And I was also living with my parents at the time. So, you know, like that was all right for me. I asked Yasin to tell me what it was like when he first found out about Uber and how he got hooked on the app. Here's a little bit more from our interview. Gig economy, I didn't know what that word meant. So in 2012, Uber came into London. And I had a mate that was, and when they first come, they only went for the niche market, which was the executive cars, so the high end. And those drivers got paid £50 an hour. So any fares they've done, if they made less than £50, Uber would top them up. So if you work 10 hours, they made £500. That was so stupid money. Like, it's crazy. But anyway, they launched, it was in 2013, they launched the Uber X. And my mate told me about it, and I had already registered with Uber. They didn't have any drivers, just a handful of drivers. So I was one of the early drivers to join Uber, and I was one of the first drivers to work with them on their launch day. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, and were this you is it. Like, for me, it? Like, how did you feel about it? I just didn't happening? understand how, how this is going to work. Like, how could a phone or an app give me jobs? It's not going to work and stuff like that. But either way, it is a promotional offer for me, where Uber said they're going to give me £10 for every job I do. And they also had some kind of, like, if you work the first week, we're going to give you £100. And at the same time, I could also work with my local, like, the guys I was working with. So it was just, like, sitting. And, and at the same time, they also had this uh, referral bonus, where I got paid £500 to refer a driver. So within that week, I referred three other drivers. So I already made fifteen hundred pounds, you know. But the first day was good because we had done a massive launch. They gave everyone fifty pound vouchers, and if they referred someone else, they got fifty pounds. And everyone, you were getting jobs, and the jobs were well priced. And then, and for me, when I come from home, I wasn't pricing it as like what I'm doing in terms of the jobs. 
I was pricing look ten pounds the bonus, so I'd get in ten pounds. So I, my target was to make ten, do ten jobs and go home. So I'm doing quick ten jobs, hundred pound, forget about the fares, and come back home. So within a week, I started telling all the guys I knew, like all the look, I just made a thousand pounds, like in three four days, man. You got to be coming over here. But to me, it just shows that Af was wicked. Yasin's story had quite a bit in common with other stories I heard in completely different countries. I got to go to South Africa and met several drivers there, and you'll be meeting a couple of them during this season. Right now, I want to introduce you to one of them, Tess Munchik, who's from Johannesburg, but has now moved to the United States, and I was able to interview her over a drink in a crowded cafe in Kingston, New York. You'll hear about a few things she had in common with Yasin. I've got a weird kind of story. I was actually a casting director for TV commercials and I had a company for 14 years and then things, you know, just the economy and various things I had to close. And then I wasn't quite sure what to do with my life and um, so I caught an Uber one day and it was a woman driver and I was kind of quite surprised and I kind of started chatting to her and, you know, do you enjoy it and do you feel safe and what kind of money do you make? Um, and then I just thought, well, it seems perfect. Uh, I love driving. I love people. The money sounded really good. And, you know, you speak to drivers and most drivers like bandy about these figures. It makes it sound like it's really going to be profitable. Uh, 2015. So um, I had some divorce money and I was very stupidly invested in some cars for Uber. So, okay, so at that time you were, so it was 2015, you were in Johannesburg at the time, you had a little bit of money, you had to look for a new job, and um, you were just getting the impression from people that were driving that this was a really good deal. I mean, at that time, how new was Uber to South Africa? Um, Uber arrived in 2013, and then I think it was 2014 that they brought in UberX, because initially they launched with Uber Black, um, which in itself was a big problem because a lot of guys had bought Uber Black, so luxury German vehicles generally. And then when they introduced UberX, the rates were much lower, and people started using UberX um, rather than Uber Black. So a lot of guys lost a lot of money when when uber x was introduced so when when do you and you did you come in then or what was your did you come in as uber black um no i came in later in 2015 that introduced uber van um which is a nine-seater vehicle so i bought a nine-seater vehicle which um hyundai h1 is very common there they don't uh, have the model in in america that i know of so i bought um <laughs> i bought a hyundai h1 and then i had my personal car that i thought i would use and then later on i bought a uber black so i bought a audi a4 so i invested a large sum of money tess told me more about how easy it was for people to sign on to the platform and once on the platform how people got hooked in my other interviews i heard over and over again how men and women who some of them had already been driving and some had never driven professionally before were buying cars and jumping into what seemed like a very exciting new business opportunity. 
but it wasn't all as good as it seemed. Just about every driver I interviewed explained how, in the end, they discovered the platform was a bait-and-switch game for drivers. I'm going to take you now from Johannesburg to San Francisco, the place where the apps got their start. And I'm going to introduce you to two terrific people I interviewed there. First, let's meet Lauren Casey, an organizer with an Oakland-based group called Gig Workers Rising. And I also just thinking through like some of the drivers who work, you know, quite closely with Gig Workers Rising and the really thousands of drivers that we've spoken to before. You speak to the folks, you know, who years ago started um, and they started um, using the platform because they had a really long commute. Right. And they realized, oh, I can pick someone up on my really long commute and make you know, use the carpool lane and make some money while I'm doing it for my really long commute, right? It was the idea of ride sharing, right? It was that if this person's going in this direction, why not pick someone up who's going in the same direction and make a few extra dollars, right? Which is not at all what it is at this point, you know, from what it was then to what it is today in order to make ends meet as a driver, you're constantly being pinged in different directions, you're chasing after bonuses, you're app is shutting off randomly, you know, all of these different things that it's nowhere close to what it once was. Um, and I think that was a real promise that was given to drivers. And, you know, when Uber first started out, they were really um, a much more, I would hate to use the, the term down to earth, but, you know, they were having meetings with drivers, you know, the first 50, 100 drivers who signed up, right? The With executives from Uber, right? And really, you know, saying we're building this together, right? Like you're on the, you're out there on the road, we're out, we're here doing the technology, we're building this company together. And also just thinking about how much that has diverged over the years, right? There's no contact, you know, it's impossible for a driver to speak to the company, whether it's to get help during an emergency, to fix something wrong with their payment, anything like that. And of course the pay was so different, right? The promises that were made to drivers when they were first brought on, the pay structure, the bonuses, the, you know, this is how much you'd be able to earn if you sign up with us now. Um, and if you just look at the numbers from what was possible a few years ago to what drivers are earning today, it's, it's peanuts now. Can you talk about that? Like, what was it and how did it, you, how did it change? Um, I mean, if you just do some, you know, there's a lot of data out there just in terms of what uh, driver pay once looked like and specifically what were the percentages out, or the commission, right, that the companies were taking out of um, driver's pay. And at one point when they first started, it was like 10, 20% they were taking, you know? I mean, these days it's 50, 60, 70 looking at certain rides, you know, the percentage that they're taking out. And so over time, they just, you know, every few months roll out these pay cuts and they send a really chipper email to their drivers, right? Or it's an in-app message that comes up that says, you know, we take uh, driver's feedback seriously and in order to stabilize your earnings and guarantee you know more predictable wages we're changing this and this about the pay and what they're really saying is we just cut your pay by 30 percent um one of the most recent pay cuts that happened in the bay area was two weeks before the december holidays i mean it was just it was awful it was awful to see and hear from every driver you spoke to that they had to completely re rearrange their plans, whether they're gonna be able to see family, whether they're gonna be able to buy their children gifts. Like, it's just so clear the decisions that are made at the companies and how it affects the folks on the ground and how they have no say in any of those decisions. What Laura described sounded a lot like what the drivers I met in South Africa had said. At first, they made lots of money. Then over time, 
more and more drivers got onto the platforms, but the rates went down and down. And there seemed to be some other strange things going on as well. Lauren introduced me to a driver named Rebecca Stack Martinez. As I heard her personal story, one thing stood out for me. How much harder it can be to work for an app than to work for another human being. I started driving first per, um, only for Lyft. Uh-huh. Because I thought Lyft was the good company. Uh-huh. And Uber was the bad one, right? Uh-huh. Because Uber had this reputation from their previous CEO, founder, Travis. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and about, you know, misogyny in the workplace and things like that. And so I said, well, I'm not working for them. I'll only work for Lyft because they're better. They're a good company. Um, so I did that primarily, I think I, think I was primarily, or exclusively with Lyft for maybe four, six months part-time while I was finishing my master's. Which is when? In 2000, the beginning of 2018. Okay. That's when I started driving. Okay. And can you just talk a little bit, just explain for someone mm-hmm. who's never driven from one of these, mm-hmm. like what was it like when you first got on the platform and started driving for mm-hmm. them? Like, you know... <coughs> Right. When, it, when you first start driving, there's a lot of anxiety because you're learning the app and learning all the features and how you use it. And if you accidentally hit the wrong button, it like cancels the ride and then you don't get paid. And, you know, so there's a lot of anxiety around just ensuring that you're using it correctly. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that um, is, you know, if you're not out on the road driving down every single street in your city every single day, mm-hmm. there's this fear of not knowing where you are, where you're going, you know, that, that fear of unknown of driving around neighborhoods that you're unfamiliar with, you know. Um, and then as a woman driver, right, there's the fear of my safety. And what does that look like? And what does that mean to me? Mm-hmm. You know, so there is this sense of like hyper awareness of who's getting into your car and mm-hmm. things like that. So you have, as a driver, you have a lot of things going on at one moment, right. right? You're paying attention to this app, accepting rides, picking people up, making sure where you pull over is legal mm-hmm. um, and safe and, you know, checking out the people that are getting in your car. And then once they get in, regardless of what mood they're in, you have to be friendly because your ratings depend on it. Mm-hmm. And if you get a low rating, you, you face deactivation. Mm-hmm which in tech terms is um, basically synonymous with an immediate firing. And did you know all this before you signed no. up for the platform? It was, so it was, and, and you're all by yourself. And is that what you expected it to be like? Or what were your expectations when you got on the platform? You know, I really, um, prior to driving, I've, I've been a passenger. And so I, I knew what it was like to get into a stranger's car, right? Um, But this was a little bit different. I guess my expectations were I was going to pick people up and they were going to be super happy and grateful that I was available to pick them up and give them a ride um, and that there would be a lot of pleasantries. And I I assumed as well, being in the service industry prior, that you're going to run into people who may not be having a good day or something like that. But that, you know, I usually can handle that pretty well. Um, so, yeah, I had low expectations. I really, you know, I wasn't expecting to be rich. I wasn't expecting to become some, like, tech engineer. Um, yeah, and it just, you know, and, and for me it was only supposed to be part-time and temporary. And so whatever it was, I was just going to struggle through it because that's what I had to do to earn an income. Yeah. And did you have any expectations of what the company was going to do for you? Well, I expected, um, you know, a, a basic, a basic support system for their drivers. Um, like, for example, like a call center or some somebody that I could call and discuss any maybe issues or questions or problems that I was having. 
When I was driving with Lyft initially, I, I had to make a few phone calls to them and they were very responsive and seemed very helpful at that time. Um, the further and longer I started driving and I uh, would run into new or different issues, I felt like that support system, that call line, became less and less available, harder to get a hold of somebody, they didn't reach you back, and when they did, it was like they were giving you very scripted answers, like almost as if they weren't really listening to what my issue was, and they just like picked, oh, I'm going to give this response, right? And so it was really frustrating. I felt like, okay, I'm really, I'm all by myself. And even this company who I'm out here making money for can't even help me. Yeah. There's nobody there to talk to. And what were like, what were some of the issues that were coming up that you would have asked for help mm -hmm. about? Um, one of the biggest issues was um, after I would complete a trip, my fare would be cal calculated incorrectly. And so I would call them and say, hey, um, I'm missing about 10 miles from this trip, which is significant. Um, and I wasn't going to just let that go. <laughs> um, and, you know, they were like, oh, well, we'll investigate and then let you know. And it was like I had, would have to continuously follow up, which was for $4. But by the time I spent an hour working on it, was it really worth me to, you know, nag about $4? Not really. Other issues that I would run into was minors trying to use the app, which is against the law in state, state of California. So if you're under the age of 18, you have to be accompanied by an adult. And if you pull up as a driver and take them, that's a huge legal risk and liability, right? Um, and so I wouldn't take them. And you're supposed to, as a driver, report those riders as underage minors. So Tech, what, what they claim that they do is they deactivate those accounts, which is unfortunately not true. Um, so I would call and, call and say, hey, this was a minor, um, and let them know what, what was happening with that. And I, and I felt like they're like, oh, okay. And as I'm sitting there on the phone with them, I'm, I, I, and they're like, okay, we're going to you know, do what we do with the you know, deactivate the account. I'm watching this minor get into another rideshare car. You know, so didn't feel like they were listening or really even cared. As you've heard, Rebecca didn't have the same high expectations of making a lot of money like Yassine or Tess. She just expected to be able to make some extra money. She told me several stories of things that had happened to her as a driver, including more about the rate cuts. So the first thing was, how do we stop these pay cuts, uh -huh. right? Cost of living is increasing, but yet they're, they're cutting our pay every six months. What? Like gas was skyrocketing at the moment, and we get a pay cut. And it's like, well, how, how do they expect us to continue to survive when, you know, San Francisco is the most expensive city in the U.S., but yet our rates are going down. Um, and did they ever explain to you why the rates were going down? Oh... Well, according to their email notifications of when there was a rate change, it was because they valued our time and they heard us. And so they were implementing these changes. And they, they would say the emails, I mean, were, were blunt, bl to be blunt, they were insulting. They were insulting to any driver's intelligence. I don't know if they think drivers just don't get it or don't care or don't understand or wouldn't read, but to tell us that they value our time while they're cutting our mileage rates and then say, we've done this, but don't worry, your pay will, you're, we're doing this to make sure your pay is more consistent. It took us one day of driving with the new rates to realize it was not consistent, that it was a pay cut 
and that uh, once again, they were misleading their drivers with this information. Based on my interviews, it seemed like these kinds of rate cuts were not just happening in San Francisco. They were happening everywhere. In fact, it seemed to be part of the business model, luring lots of drivers onto the platform and then dropping the rates. But how did they do it exactly? And how did they keep drivers on the platform once they'd done it? Let's go back to Tess. She suggested a clue to this question. They earned less and less, waited longer and longer for rides, um, and to the point that people sleep at the airport waiting for a ride. I used to sleep at the airport sometimes, and it's crazy. You sleep at the airport, and then you get a ride, and you have no idea. It could be like a really short ride. So you spent the whole night sleeping in your car, and then it's really, you know, not a, not a long ride. Um, so... People in America, drivers in America are really surprised. I know like there's a lot of the markets flooded in a lot of cities here, but it's really quite normal for for drivers to wait like four hours for for a ride. So yeah, it's it's really tough um, and discouraging. Um, and yeah, Uber, you know, the rideshare companies just don't care because for them, the more vehicles on the road, the better. So their incentive was to get as many people onto the platform as they possibly could. Absolutely. And were they aware that people were taking financial risks to purchase vehicles, to sort of get into the business? What was the... I have to believe that they that they know the business model. You know, it wasn't a new business model and... Um, the thing is that they've got data. So if someone says to them, oh, um, drivers are only making X amount of money, they'll come with their data and they'll have like their top 10% of drivers and they'll show the stats for those drivers and they'll say, no, look, I mean, the drivers, all of them are making a lot of money. That's absolute nonsense. Um, if someone's not doing enough rides, let's say not working the right areas or they'll have some excuse, but I just can't believe that they don't know exactly what they're doing. Over the course of the next several episodes, we're going to learn more about this business model. We'll hear about how the companies evaded the law, and we'll learn about something called misclassification. For today's episode, though, I just want to focus on one thing that Tess just said, that the companies have lots of data and they cherry-pick that data to make it seem like drivers who don't make a good living have only themselves to blame. To understand this point a little better, I want to introduce you to one more person today, James Farrer, who, like Yassine, is based in London. James and Yassine brought what turned into a precedent-setting case against Uber, but that's a story for another episode. For today, I just want to share what James told me about what he learned about the data the company was collecting and how they were using it against him. Well, actually, it was it was, um, it was an interesting moment when I was being cross-examined by Uber's um, barrister, QC. And what Uber were challenging was Uber presented data on for the entire year of 2015. And... Um, what there were, I had quite a high cancellation rate. I was probably cancelling 50% of the work that I was doing. And what they were trying to show was, well, two things. Number one, 
this person obviously has a choice. Who, who else in any workplace can you refuse work and expect to enjoy rights like minimum wage and holiday pay? Number one. And, and number two, uh, they were trying to... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they were trying to challenge my right to minimum wage by sort of saying, well, what, what, what was he doing when he wasn't doing the work? If he's declining the work, what, what, what was he doing? Maybe he's working for somebody else. Maybe he's at home in bed asleep or watching television or whatever. You know, he's doing these other things. You know, we, we can't be on the hook for that time that as working time. I'm going to summarize a bit of our interview here as I was starting to connect the dots. Uber was luring lots of drivers onto the platform in cities around the world. And at first the rates were good, and then they implemented rate cuts. When drivers complained about not making minimum wage, they would say it was because the drivers hadn't accepted enough jobs. In James's case, they claimed their data showed that he was just sitting around idle and canceling jobs. But James was able to show that even though he turned down half the jobs, he was still accepting more jobs and working harder than the average driver. So when he got hold of his data, he was able to prove that even working full-time hours, he couldn't make minimum wage. And so what Uber had done with the data is they, they had switched the narrative away from focusing on the work that I did do uh, and, and placing the focus on the work I didn't do and sort of began the sort of misinformation that, well, what was he doing on all that downtime? I, well, I didn't have any downtime. I was busy. I was more busy than you would have at 91 hours than you expected at 40 to 60 hours. Uh, and so I began to realize there's, you know, there's an information war here and, and Uber had its hands on the data and it was going to use that data in every, every avenue against us. An information war is how James described it. And it brought up an issue that neither drivers nor customers may consider when they sign up for the app. Uber isn't just providing a service. It's harvesting all our data. I'm going to introduce you now to an expert who has called this the datafication of employment. Her name is Michelle Miller, and she co-founded an organization called coworker.org. You did a recent paper mm -hmm. that, um, you know, that I've, I've got on my desk here that is called the datafication of employment. And can you just explain what that title means? We called it the datafication of employment, mostly because like, what was clear was that the most highly valued commodity inside of these systems was the data that was being extracted from people and then being paired with other people's data to start to aggregate um, a system of kind of all-knowing, a digital panopticon for people inside their workplaces. Just give us an example of what other information a ride-hailing app is actually collecting about its drivers and its customers. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the algorithm is designed, you, it's important to start with like, what is the algorithm? What is the corporate incentive of the design of the algorithm? And what they want above all is to ensure that there um, is this endless supply of drivers so that you're building up a customer base that feels um, like addicted basically to your app. Um, and that you are optimizing the app to uh, engage in repeat performance and you're optimizing it so that, um, so that it has enough information on the people that are using it that they feel like it's the only place they can come back to because it's like 
uh, created this trove of data. And so the kind of data that um, Uber or Lyft or these platforms are collecting on an average ride about a driver is, you know, where is the driver and where are they willing to go in order to pick up um, a passenger? And what is the lowest amount that we could possibly pay this driver in order for them to go the farthest in order to pick up this passenger? Um, the passenger, what they're collecting on the passenger is where are the highest concentrations of passengers so that we can incentivize through things like surge pricing drivers to go into those places. And again, always, what is the lowest amount of money that we can pay people in order to get them to go there? At this point, the fare drops that Rebecca and Tess had described to me and James's story about how Uber used his data in court to argue that he wasn't making minimum wage because he wasn't accepting enough rides began to click into place. Uber's real business model had something to do with using data to push drivers to accept rides for lower and lower fares. Michelle called this algorithmic management. I asked her to explain that. What algorithmic management does is it takes the if as in, if you make this delivery, then you'll get another delivery, and it bakes it into code. And that code um, basically looks at whoever you are as an individual, it takes all the data um, that it knows about you, it makes a decision about what kind of job you're going to get. So if you are a highly rated driver, and if you have been um, if you are known to do, you know, a, a, a bunch of jobs and you're going to stay on here, then, then we will provide you with this highly lucrative task and then you will perform it. And then we will decide after you've performed that, if there are enough people around that we want to give you another one. So it's like, it's this, it makes decisions in real time about what your workday is going to be. So if you meet a certain set of criteria determined by our data, then you will receive additional jobs or you will receive a rate of pay. Uh, we will determine what that pay is going to be based on the demands that are being made by the public versus norm what normally would happen, which is you make an agreement at the outset about what your rate of pay is going to be, and then you and then you know what that's going to be. That's a very predictable thing. So, like an algorithmic management system makes a series of decisions based on what it finds out from you and what it what it already knows about what it sort of wants to provide to you. Um, what it's programmed to do, and it's all designed not to maximize the experience for the worker or even for the consumer, but to ensure the most amount of um, work for the least amount of money for the company. One thing I've learned over the past several months is that data is the new gold. It's the resource every company wants. And companies are scooping up far more information about all of us than any of us realize. Earlier this year, I had a chance to join a workshop that James led. He was talking to several fellow drivers from around the world, and he was explaining to them what data was being collected and how it was being used. I just want to share one exchange that happened in that workshop between James and a driver from Philadelphia named Ali. So firstly, Uber denies that it is profiling drivers, um, but I've seen my profile, yes. Um, 
so I, I, what happened one day, as I, I mentioned earlier in the session, was I opened the app one day, and there was a whole field of performance factors about me in there. And it had inappropriate behavior instances, attitude. I don't know how you distinguish between attitude. I mean, it's a very American thing, attitude, right? You know, uh, Chicago. Um, but, you know, I had an attitude. But, you know, but I suppose in Britain that could be a good thing. I, he had a good, had a good attitude. I, or I had a bad attitude. I don't know. Attitude, um, inappropriate behavior, missed ETAs, whole host of these kind of performance factors like that. I had a similar thing. Um, in the fields of data I've shown you, you can see lots of things that are being tracked, like um, on time. Were you in time? Were you late? Um, so we can see those factors are being collected. Lots of stuff is being collected. But again, we're not, we're not yet knowing how it's processed and how people are profiled. So I know there is that profile about me because um, I saw it. And as soon as I challenged it, Uber was like, la, 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 you know, you didn't see that. It doesn't exist. That was a mistake. That doesn't mean anything. Forget you saw that. Um, but I know it's real because then I saw it in the notes on the emails that they submitted in evidence to tribunal that said, um, I'm attaching this inappropriate behavior tag to his profile because I don't know what else to attach. Now, since we've since challenged them with the lawyer, they say, no, 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 that doesn't exist. So we'll probably have to go to tribunal and say, no, we know this exists and we've got to have it and we've got to have it now. And this will put Uber under a lot of pressure because when you go to tribunal for something like this, it's not a, it's not a bargaining session. It is, have you been compliant or how, are you not compliant? And that's, that's what the court will decide. Can I, Ali. Can I just add something? So what Uber is collecting, as far as I am concerned with US, so during the deposition of our case, uh, Uber lawyer asked me a question that, why did you refuse this job? That was yeah. a particular job. And I knew where I was standing. And I just remembered that job. Normally you don't. It was like a month ago I refused that job. I said, uh, because there was some blockade on that street and I couldn't go. I normally don't refuse any job. My acceptance rate is high always and a cancellation is very low. He said, and you did refuse that job because you were playing Candy Crush at that time. Oh, oh shit. So they actually proved me, they showed me the documentation, everything, that I was playing Candy Crush. Right. Creepy, right? Drivers themselves were learning, and I was learning too, that data is power. The companies started off friendly to drivers, lured them onto the platform as partners and offered high rates. Then, as I learned, they used algorithmic management to figure out new ways to pit drivers against each other and see how far they could push down rates. Was this even legal? Was there anything drivers could do about it? I have so many questions. I've introduced you in this episode to some of the people who are helping me to understand more. Tess from Johannesburg, James and Yassine from London, Rebecca and Lauren from San Francisco. We'll be hearing more from them about problems like deactivation, misclassification, and control over information. And importantly, we'll be hearing more about the ways they started fighting for a better system in the next few episodes. My name is Bama Athreya, and thanks for tuning into The Gig. I'd like to thank my producer, John Ross. My advisory team, Marina Colby, Trey Hester, Amal Mera, Tim Newman, Evan Papp, and Alex Toma, and all the people who generously shared their time for these interviews. Finally, 
Thank you to Open Society Foundations for their generous support for this project.